Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. say good morning this morning to the uh, street washers. Now, for those of you who um, know Joel Manby or know the uh, television show Undercover Boss, you might might suddenly have an aha moment in the last segment of today's second hour. So uh, that's what I am going to tease with to keep you around. For both hours this morning of Mornings with Carmen, good morning to you all. Good morning to the street washers out there in the pre-dawn frozenness, doing what you do uh, each and every day to um, make the world a little bit of a better place. So thank you. All right. Where in the word are you today? I uh, I watched the National Prayer Breakfast yesterday. I didn't watch it, obviously, when it was happening in terms of its uh, first run. But now keep in mind, it was a virtual event for the first time in the event's history. The National Prayer Breakfast was held yesterday virtually, um, but it's still available online if you want to go and uh, and watch it and participate in it. I was particularly moved by the comments and uh, the scripture reading and the prayer of Senator James Lankford. I would commend to you um, the experience of entering into prayer for our nation and this is a uh, a bipartisan event that's been taking place since um well this is this is year 69 i think i might be wrong no i think so it's almost 70 years yeah yeah so um extra- it's an extraordinary annual event and this year different in that it was virtual but that also means that we can all participate in it so i'm just going to invite you to check that out uh matt hawkins and i are actually going to talk about the substance of it but i wanted to open with um the verses that James Langford read to the nation yesterday in the National Prayer Breakfast, they are drawn from the third chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. So you would know this as Colossians chapter 3. Let's, um, let's, let's read the opening 17 verses of that book, or of that chapter of that book. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, evil desire, covetousness, mm, little tongue-tied this morning, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Matthew Hawkins joins us in just a moment. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Joining me now, Matthew Hawkins, former policy director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, uh, he has served in Washington, D.C. You can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com. Hey, welcome back, my friend. Thank you, Carmen. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. So this National Prayer Breakfast was different than um, the yeah. ones in years prior, um, but in many ways it was also uh, very similar. Talk with us about your experience of this National Day uh, or National Prayer Breakfast and maybe your uh, prior experiences with the same event. Yeah, so... It's got a lengthy history, this uh, National Day of Prayer. Um, before I get into that, can I just, uh, um, uh, you know, applaud the scripture or your reading of the scripture verse uh, in, in your lead-in? <laughs> hey, we can, you can uh, always applaud scripture. That, That's like our that favorite was, thing to do would be to applaud scripture. Was, there you go. That was really good. And all, all I want to point out is uh, those obligations for love and forgiveness and uh, all those things uh, of echoing uh, attitudes of Christ. Um, we don't get an escape clause when we say with uh, from our political engagement um, from those mm. obligations. And so when we yeah, engage nowhere the in here square, does it says except when you're in ex- politics yeah. or except, except when except you politics, are right. except when you are identifying with a particular political party. Then you can take off Christ and just yeah. you know yeah do all these horrible things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> No, so it's, right. it's just a little soapbox of mine. We we tend to silo our political engagement apart from a lot of those uh, scriptural obligations. So that's just an aside. <laughs> Back to the prayer. Good. No, I love it. All right. Now, now that we have applauded scripture, let's walk it out. Where did you see the themes of maybe unity and forgiveness and the, the uh, these these Christ-like callings? Where did you see them in evidence uh, in yeah. yesterday's national prayer breakfast? Well, clear, clearly, uh, Senator Lankford, who is one of my favorite senators, uh, I know. Could um, we just? There, could he just um, like come and be our shepherd? <laughs> he's. Don't you just he's love pretty that fantastic. guy. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's he's pretty fantastic. I, I had some personal experience with him uh, when I was in D.C. Our office uh, frequently collaborated with his office. Um, that's a it's a top notch uh, operation over there uh, in Senator Lankford. Um, and I can say that because uh, nobody's running for uh, office right now. There's no campaign <laughs> campaign. So I can say good things about uh, of, of uh, public officials. Um, so he's always going to bring the scripture. He's a former he's a former Baptist minister um, and uh, from the state of Oklahoma. Homa, and uh, so he's he's got a really clear view of what it means to engage the the public square 
um, with the mind of Christ and uh, and as Christians. And so anything, any any participation by Senator Lankford, I'm going to eat up. Um, clearly, clearly, we're we're in a really uh, intense, weird, strange. You know, fill in, you know, pick your own adjective uh, era in America. Uh, and that includes in our politics. And uh, the National Prayer Breakfast has a long history. Um, uh, like you said, almost 70 years. I think the first one was in 1953. Um, and uh, actually um, is traced back to an immigrant named Abraham Veridi. A Norwegian immigrant uh, born in 1886. So this is uh, the prayer breakfast doesn't go back uh, beyond the 50s, but uh, its origins and its inspiration, uh, you know, began you know began with a guy born in eight in the 1800s, which is uh, which is kind of cool. Um, so uh, anytime you know, I, I'm. I recognize the nuance and kind of the paradox here um, with uh, national the national prayer breakfast. Um, some people, you know, it was you know largely created and started as a Christian event, um, but we are in a pluralistic, religiously pluralistic environment. Just by that, it just means the fact of a multi-faith uh, population, and so uh, it, it tends to become. Uh, kind of multi-faith and and not only Christian, which makes it awkward for Christians sometimes to participate in. And uh, I, I'm not as I don't have as much of an aversion to uh, the prayer breakfast um, as or the National Day of Prayer, which is different um, than some people. But I do think Christians have to be mindful um, and about uh, you know with the appearance of Christianity kind of being watered down to uh, a kind of. Uh, you know, sub-biblical, um, amorphous kind of civil religious event, right? Uh, okay, um, well, so can I can I pause you there and make yeah. an observation about something I felt like I heard yesterday and experienced yesterday that sort of pricked my spirit? Um, yeah. I heard lots of references and appeals to faith, You're right? But yeah. not, but not direct references and appeals to God. Right. Faith yeah. is not saving faith unless faith is. Uh, you know, directed toward the one in whom alone faith makes any right. sense whatsoever. Exactly. The and, object and so, of our faith really makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And so I just, you know, in terms of a conversation that you and I can have with each other that might um, inspire listeners to go and have a similar conversation, when you are, because uh, you can still go back and, and listen to and participate in the National Day of Prayer, like it's online, uh, National Prayer Breakfast, excuse me, it's online. And um and you could do that maybe alongside someone else uh, in your family or a friend, a coworker. Even um, it's very bipartisan. There's a you know there's equal representation yeah. from you know sort of both sides of what we consider the aisles in the U.S. Um, and each and every one of these people are Christians and they are expressing their faith. And so I just it, I think it's a good opportunity, Matt, to say, okay, what did that person say? And what right. do they mean when they use those words? Because yeah, that's exactly right. Because the word faith, in particular, I felt like in President Biden's message specifically, um, the word God was avoided. I mean, it was yeah. it was almost as if, okay, let's do a a, a search, find, and replace for everywhere right. that that you would have naturally <laughs> said was, God and replace it with the word faith, and that yeah, for me conspicuously absent. Yeah. Yes, God was conspicuously absent from a message about faith. 
Um, and yeah. so I just I'm not being critical. I'm trying to be observant sure, sure. and I'm trying right. to uh, I'm trying to be a person who doesn't think critically about people, but thinks critically about ideas. Yeah, I, I think that's that's the right approach. That's the right approach. I think we need to think critically. It's a it's a you know it's a bipartisan it's a bipartisan multi faith event. Um, it's a national it's a national event. Um, when it's in person and not virtual, uh, you know, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of hobnobbing, basically a lot of networking, <laughs> um, and uh, at the event. Um, but you and I are people who believe that words matter, and so we ought to be astute um, and follow that and kind of recognize. There are differences when p- different people uh, use the word faith. When when you and I talk about faith in the Christian context, there's a lot of uh, presumptions that you and I uh, agree with and kind of re- recognize how we m- use the word faith to communicate. Um, when we step into the political arena or, or the, the public space, basically, um, uh, not everybody, uh, as, as you observe, is using faith in quite the same way. It's a, in our cultural, outside the Christian church, culturally speaking, it's a pretty amorphous term. Um, I'm not going to like, I don't want to, you know, but I also don't want to like immediately like you criticize the use of it. Right. I want to try to meet those people. If, you know, if it were president Biden or somebody else who were using the word faith in what I suspect is kind of a, an amorphous kind of undefined uh, kind of thing that may not have the same object of Jesus Christ as you and I would, I want to find where I can meet that person uh, and discuss, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to beat them over the head by saying, I don't, you're not using it in the way I use it. Right. <laughs> right. No, but um, I think, I but I think to, to be able want, to, right. that's sort of the discourse that we need today. Like, what do you mean yeah. when you use the word faith? You know, because I would love to share with you what I, you know, how I experience that, um, that verb. Um, and, and in order to sort of win the right to get to share with you, I really want to hear you first. I want to hear you out. What do you mean, you know, faith has to have an object. So um, what's the object of the faith that you're articulating? Hey, Matt, we got we to gotta take a break. Um, when we come back, I need you to um, do a little bit of historical reminder on the June medical uh, case that was before the Supreme Court because there's a sure. development, which I think is it's like weird for us to even imagine that there's a development in a case that the Supreme Court has already heard and made a decision on. So um, yeah. Matt Hawkins is going to explain to us the development in the June medical case. It has to do um, with life issues, and so it is of concern to us. We'll be right back. All right, continue my conversation with Matt Hawkins. Uh, Matt, the headline is Judge Orders Documents from June Medical Services Supreme Court Abortion Case to be Unsealed. So let's uh, start with yeah. a quick reminder. Um, what was the June Medical Services case and what did the Supreme Court decide in that case? Yeah, for, for context, this was a uh, Supreme Court decision issued uh, la- just last year in June. Um, but going back, uh, it emanates from state-level pro-lifers doing state-level legislation. What do I I mean by that? The June Medical Services case comes out of Louisiana. Uh, There was a parallel case also in Texas. But basically, pro-life legislators said, look, if you're going to perform abortions in the state of Louisiana, this is, um, at at the very least, set apart the moral objections that we have to it. If you're going to perform medical procedures— at an abortion clinic, your abortion clinic better play ball 
and be at least as medically qualified as every other kind of medical service available. What does that mean? Uh, it means doctors need to have uh, privileges at hospitals. Um, they need to uh, have certain uh, emergency care preparations available. Uh, the doorways have to be able to fit a gurney through in an emergency situation. These kinds of very technical um, but very reasonable um, public health kinds of situations. Um, people are doing medical procedures. They ought to be um, playing ball within the scope of the greater responsible medical uh, medical care um, industry. Um, that's the basic gist. Um, and Louisiana and Texas have both attempted this, and the Supreme Court both times has struck it down. Um, that's bad news, um, naturally, for the pro-life movement. But um, things in the legal <laughs> in the legal space never go away. Uh, like we've said, like I've said before, uh, American policymaking and politics is like a never-ending football game. Uh, you get a first down here, you get a sack there, right? But the clock never really runs out. And so, what we have here is a situation where. Um, Kind of an absurd, absurd uh, not absurd, kind of an obscure legal process um, is uh, is adding new air, new oxygen to this this fire, this conflict in Louisiana. And so basically, there were a bunch of documents um, related to the abortion industry's side of that case, and the decision this week um, by this federal judge basically says those documents may be unsealed. They were previously sealed, not to see the light of day by the public. And after uh, basically um, a number of different kinds of people, legislators, uh, journalists included, uh, basically, this is an imprecise word, but basically lobbied the court to say, hey, these are documents that we feel the public should know about. Um, and uh, we would like to write about it and be informed about it so we can better understand what the Supreme Court did last year. And so that is an interesting uh, development. And so once those documents become unsealed, Legally speaking, uh, we should have much greater insight into um, what's going on in the abortion industry, particularly with respect to Louisiana and those and those um, those services. Does that help? Is that a helpful explanation? Yeah. Yeah. So um, just to summarize it for our listeners, there are um, courts. Some people, when they go to court, they ask that documents be sealed so that the public mm -hmm. um, via reporting on those cases does not then have access to those underlying documents. Well, we want access to the underlying documents because we want to understand um, not only the court's decision, but we want to understand what's going on in the background of the conversation. So these hospital exactly. bylaws. Um, documents about admitting privileges, procedures, the credentialing processes, um, testimony yeah. pertaining to clinic conditions, practices, hospitalizations relating to abortions performed. All of those kinds of things are the kinds of documents that will now be unsealed by this judge's order um, in relationship to the June Medical Services case. So what, what I think that we can expect is some more robust, um, long-form reporting on the underlying conditions that led to the request um, in Louisiana by pro-life advocates to um, to have these procedures put into place because they have evidence that women are being harmed. Yeah. And in, in what is supposed to be a, quote unquote, medical procedure um, and and you and I, I mean, I don't know, I, I don't recognize abortion as a medical procedure, um, but uh, that's sure. the that's yeah. the language of the day. 
And so if it's going to be a medical procedure, it ought to be performed in a medical environment and the doctor, there ought to be a doctor performing it and there ought to be admitting privileges to hospitals and on and on and on and on and on. That would be my argument. And it was the argument made by pro-lifers. And we want to see the underlying documents that led the Supreme Court to decide differently. Is that fair? And in the... That is fair, and I think in the long game, what, why this matters is because it will greater it will help uh, the pro life movement in the future, either for new legislation in Louisiana and Texas or in other states who want to try to do it, um, uh, do it but amend the process and the strategy moving forward. Um, exactly. So this will be interesting to watch, um, and I think it's 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 a, it's, a, it's a good news. It's not it's not a huge win, but look, hey, we we we'll take our first down when we can get it. There you go. There you go. Um, all right. Um, hi. Nice reference there to uh, the upcoming Super Bowl this weekend. Love it. Hey, right. how about that uh, transition? Ah, that's a good. That's good. Hey, <laughs> Matt Hawkins, we got to leave it right there. Um, blessings upon you. Thank you so much, as always, for joining us. Matt is the former policy director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. You can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com. We'll be right back. All right. Um, sometimes we are we get labels slapped on us. I mean, I, it happens frequently, um, right? Other people apply a label to us, and by that label, they seek to define us. Um, and it's a challenging um, it's challenging to then turn and say, "Well, that's not um, that's not quite accurate, and that's certainly not um, a full picture of who I am." So we're going to talk with Dan DeWitt about uh, C.S. Lewis and when he was labeled a fundamentalist, um, what that means, what that meant, and what it would mean for you and I today as Christians to be prepared to be um, labeled in the same way. <clears throat> so I'm going to talk a little bit about my own experience with that label when Dan DeWitt joins us from Cedarville University. That's up next. So, Mom and Dad, let me ask you a question. Does your teen seem sensible? The response I get from most parents is, are you crazy? Of course not. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Teens are wired for chaos, and they spread it everywhere they go, including your home. Our job as parents is to help our teenagers emerge as sensible, responsible, and mature adults. The best way to help our teens move in that direction is to allow consequences to teach them when they make bad choices. When your teen breaks a rule, show your deep love for him by refusing to let him off the hook. It could be the best thing you'll ever do to tame the chaos in your home. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University. The uh, the pieces that we're going to talk about today are all posted at theolatte.com. That is like God and coffee, theolatte.com. Dan, welcome back. Thanks, Carmen. Good to be back. So if I were to grab my um, fundy finder liberal locator <laughs> um, at Princeton when I was a student there, would you? would I have found you by looking for the fundies or by looking for the liberals? You probably, you know, if if you had been at Princeton when it was founded, which I know you weren't, right? Um, then <laughs> no. you, then well. you probably would have considered me um, 
perhaps in either of the categories. I would imagine when you went there, I would easily be in the fundy category. Well, see, it's my surprise you to learn that so was I. Right. So um, the 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 fundamentalist label, the fundy label um, is slapped on a lot of Christians, depending on who is applying the label. So that's what we want to talk about today. You have a piece posted on C.S. Lewis um, and talk about his experience of uh, of bearing the fundamentalist label and maybe how Christians today need to prepare for the same. Yeah, so C.S. Lewis um, wrote in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, which is his only book that's about Scripture, and interestingly enough, related to this topic, is the one book that most conservatives really take issue with Lewis on, because his view of Scripture would differ from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And so many people considered him a liberal, um, including people like Martin Lloyd-Jones would consider Lewis as less than conservative— But in Reflections on the Psalms, Lewis says that some people have considered him a fundamentalist. And he goes on to say the reason for that is that he doesn't reject as non-historical an account that contains references to the supernatural. So merely by believing God exists and God interacts with humanity, that put him in the category of being a fundamentalist. And if you read the passage from Reflections on the Psalms, Lewis, you could tell that's not his preferred label for himself, but nonetheless, he doesn't really fight it. He's not trying to tinker with his view of of Scripture or of supernaturalism, um, but rather to to wear that label if that's what it means. And I I think for Christians looking at Lewis as an example, um, at times as as a guide, we should learn that at some point, (laughs) that mere belief that the supernatural exists, which you can't be a Christian without that belief, um, that, that that level of belief will earn you the title fundamentalist. So no matter how sophisticated we seem or winsome or cool or trendy, if we believe the Bible at some point, we're going to be called a fundamentalist. Yeah, without question. I think one of the things this helps us talk about in the culture today um, are capital capital letters, capitalized references to words, and lowercase uses of those same words. So in this case, fundamentalism with a with a big capital F actually meant something and still does mean something. But to be called a fundy or a fundamentalist today is is often applied with a lowercase f, and it means what we're describing right now. And so it made me think um, of, you know, the word charismatic or the word Pentecostal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am charismatic, small c, in the sense that, you know, the Holy Spirit has come upon me, and I have gifts of the Spirit. I am gifted with the Spirit, and I express gifts of the Spirit. And so on a, at a little c, lowercase c level, I'm charismatic. But I'm not charismatic in terms of the capital C movement. Um, same with the word Pentecostal, right? I mean, I am, um, you know, I, I am a person who stands in line with what happened on Pentecost, the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the church and uh, and its animation by the Spirit. Um, but I am not a Pentecostal in the capital P sense of the term. Um, and so I think that when we, and then if we were to like move to a different conversation in the culture today, where we're also having this, this uh, uppercase, lowercase conversation, there is a Black Lives Matter movement, all capital letters, and they're 
uh, and there's a much greater number of people who would be absolutely willing and uh, and confident in saying, and I would be among them, that, yes, black lives matter, all lowercase letters. So am I a part of the movement that's identifiable in some organizational way? No, absolutely not. Do I identify as one who is comfortable saying that black lives matter? Yeah, absolutely. So do you think that when we're talking about the conversations of the day and the labels that we slap on people, that might be helpful equipping for Christians? Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And, you know, really, it it it, it kind of what you're talking about is the category of if someone were to try and lump you in with a group versus the nuance you might have as you're trying to talk about how you relate to that particular label. And so with fundamentalists, you know, it goes back historically to a series of publications of Bible-believing Christians who are writing about the fundamentals of the faith and people who believe those fundamental teachings of the Bible, things like the deity of Christ, were people who held to the fundamentals of the faith and then were later called fundamentalists for that reason. And often when people use these categories, I think with a, a, a capital letter, um, you know, as you discussed, sometimes it's, it's to silence us. And so often the term fundamentalist becomes a cancel term. Oh, you're just a fundamentalist. And what we're wanting to say is we can't deny our biblical commitments, but we are not a part of, for example, the, the Bob Jones movement from years past, other fundamentalist movements from years past. Don't lump us in with them. Lump us in with the fundamentals of the faith from the Bible. But those are the kind of nuances we can have when we get to voice our view. Sadly, I think the culture often just sees us as all as one and the same. And so we're going to have to be careful on the one hand to be really articulate about what we believe. But on the other hand, we just have to recognize we are going to be called a fundamentalist, whether we like it or not. All right. Labels we like, labels we don't like, the things people, uh, uh, the labels that people apply to us and the labels that we apply to others. I think it's a really good opportunity um, to, to have this conversation. Dan, one, uh, one additional observation. As I have um, seen, experienced, talked with people now over uh, the course of, of a generation whose organizations um, be they churches or uh, or the culture writ large, as as the organization moves collectively further and further to the left, more and more people who once understood themselves to be centrist or at the center find themselves on what would now be considered the extreme right. And they'll say, mm-hmm. I have not moved. My position has not changed. Um, my church left me. My party left me. I did not. I, I'm not actually the one that left. They left me. I think that is now happening on um, on the right and the left as um, as organizations move uh, further to the right or further to the left. It leaves people who once saw themselves as centrists no longer in the center because the center has shifted really dramatically. That is absolutely right. And that's, again, just a great reminder that we need to anchor ourselves in something other than our cultural moment and in something other than the moderating position of whatever organization or movement that we affiliate with. And again, that's where the fundamentals of the faith, where the term fundamentalism originally came from, is helpful. If we're anchored to what we believe are true um, things in Scripture, then no matter where things move, and inevitably they move to the left, um, that we will find our convictions in something that's not transient, that's not fleeting, that's not moving, and that may earn us titles we don't like. It may get us lumped in with people who are 
kind of doing culture warrior activity, and we're saying, no, that's not the battle we want to fight. We just believe the Bible and want to stand with that. Um, but that's why we have to be rooted in Scripture and let the culture come and go um, as it will. Let's find our, our deep beliefs, not in our identity with the movement, but rather with what God's revealed about himself. Yeah, and I think the role of apologetics is really essential here. We can, you know, we can wring our hands and grieve that uh, that that people view us as, you know, Bible-thumping deniers of science, or we can say, um, okay, do you do you recognize that? Do you recognize my humanity sufficiently to actually hear me out um, in terms of what I believe and what I think? Because your view of evangelicals is not actually the kind of evangelical I am, or your view of Christians is not the kind of Christian that I am, or your view of um, of that label that you're using to apply to me is not actually um, how I identify. And I think in a culture that celebrates, you know, personally chosen identities sort of over every other uh, expression, mm-hmm. it gives us an opportunity to find the space to articulate who we are and why we stand where we stand um, if we do so in a way that's not um, uh, reflexive and defensive, but actually, you know, prepared apologetically to say, you know, well, hey, this is actually who I am and why I'm why I'm holding to the things I'm holding to. Who are you and why are you holding to the things you're holding to? So there you go. I think it's an opportunity for conversational apologetics. Dan DeWitt and I mm-hmm. have to take a very brief conversation or a very brief break. When we come back to the conversation, we're going to talk about cosmic microwave background radiation. Yep. It's like the science segment, which means I won't be talking. <laughs> we'll be right back. I see you dressed in All right. Dan DeWitt is with me today, um, and he blogs at Theolatte.com. And you should check out this week's Weekend Worldview Reader, um, from which we glean this. Cosmic microwave background radiation? Carmen asked with a question mark. That's me (laughs) setting the ball on the tee because I (laughs) just go ahead and confess that um, I have not watched the Disney Plus show WandaVision. Um, I have watched or I have uh, had some conversations about it, but I haven't watched it. And um, the only thing that I would imagine that I know about cosmic microwave background radiation is all those times we were told not to stand in front of a microwave um, because <laughs> something might happen to us. Our brains might melt or something. Well, you need to watch WandaVision. Let's just start okay. there. But, you know, it's you, you kind of have to be a Marvel Universe geek, um, or in my case, you know, have three sons who love love it, so we end up watching it. Um, but in the most recent episode, without going into what the whole series is about, there's a, a particular point in which um, a scientist on the show, young lady, says that they could pick up this broadcast that's coming from Wanda, who's the central character, and they could pick it up with old television sets. And the reason they can is because there's a high um, level of CMBR, cosmic microwave background radiation, coming from Wanda and her world that she's broadcasting out. And it was interesting to me because there's a little dialogue where she says that there's this cosmic microwave background radiation they get these old TVs and it picks up the signal and they're able to see into to Wanda's world. Another scientist responds and he says, so you're telling me that the universe created a sitcom starring Wanda, the some of the Avengers. 
Well, the reason he would make that comment is because cosmic microwave background radiation is what's left over from the explosive creation event. Now, Mm. years ago, scientists at Princeton anticipated that if the universe wasn't eternal, there would be something like this, the kind of thing that you would have like residue from firing a gun. If you watch like CSI, you know, someone says, I didn't shoot him. They, you know, wave the wand over his sleeve and they could see the residue left over from the gunshot. And scientists predicted if the universe had a beginning, which at that point, most scientists, you know, from all the way up to Albert Einstein believed the universe was eternal. But they said if it had a beginning, there would be this explosive kind of residue. And it's CMBR. Uh, It was accidentally discovered by Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson. Um, They were messing around with sensitive antennas. They kept having interference and thought it was a problem. So they cleaned the uh, bird poop, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) off of their antennas. um, And they finally realized, no, this interference is coming uniformly from space, no matter where they pointed it. And they discovered the evidence, physical evidence left over from the creation event. Uh, And Penzias told the New York Times in 1978, my argument is the best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted. Had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. That is extraordinary. Absolutely. And again, you have to see it, you know, in in this context of most people had believed the universe was eternal from the Greek philosopher Aristotle to, you know, the recent history scientist, Albert Einstein. And what Penzias is saying as a Christian is we Christians have always believed the universe had a beginning. We're just now finding physical evidence of that. Um, Again, this is a reminder that we root our position, not in the cultural moment or in scientific consensus, but what God's revealed about himself and Penzias says, yeah, we discovered physical evidence, but we're not surprised. The Bible led us to expect that. Very cool. All right. Uh, I'm going to tweet the quote out for those of you who are looking for it. Uh, you can also follow Dan DeWitt. You can read it at theolatte.com. Um, it's not only in the Weekend Worldview Reader. It's posted right there in his blog, um, this piece on cosmic microwave background radiation, WandaVision. Pretty cool, right? Okay. Um, All right. So um, we don't have time to cover an entire another subject, but we have time to um, to talk about. I don't know what what are you doing this weekend? Who you rooting for on Sunday? Will you be watching the Super Bowl? You know, I I'm the same age as Tom Brady, which means and exactly like him, right? You haven't changed. (laughs) You're totally. exactly the same as you were like 20 yeah. years ago. Mm-hmm. And Stunning. and as you know, I could go out and play a football game, not a big deal, win the Super Bowl. Um, I kind of loathe Tom Brady, to be honest. And it's not because of anything in him personally. It's because he's defeated all the teams and quarterbacks I really like. And so oh. I'm pulling for Kansas City. So go Chiefs. All right. Well, you um, you become very popular then because in our live listening audience, we, of course, have a signal in Kansas City and we do yes. not have a signal in Tampa Bay other than those listening streaming online at MyFaithRadio.com or those listening on the Faith Radio app who are already now texting me, Go Bucks. So uh, thank you to Scott who texted in there on the text line. Oh, I even got a little Bucks, uh, a little pirate flag there. Um, All right, so we have the Kansas City Chiefs, we have uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and we have Dan DeWitt weighing in on the side of the Chiefs. So 
There you go. Thanks, brother. Well, if anyone's angry about what I said about Tom Brady, feel free to email me. Um, Paul at, at your radio station handles my email. You could just send it directly to him. All your hate mail. <laughs> <man. laughs> I will Paul. forward it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Dan, we love you. Thank you so much for joining us uh, again on this Friday. You guys need to check out the Weekend Worldview Reader. It's posted at theolatte.com. We'll be right back. All right, so what are you doing this Sunday? Let me encourage you to use the Super Bowl um, to God's glory. How might you do that? Well, there's all kinds of um, uh, of ministry resources um, already posted online. I'm going to just encourage you to check out one, footballsunday.com, footballsunday.com. Tons of Super Bowl opportunities for faith um, engagement there. Um, you can also check out what the Fellowship of Christian Athletes is doing. The Tim Tebow Foundation has resources posted. There's all kinds of outreach and media resources showcasing the faith journey of of NFL players, players sharing their testimonies. Um, we have already talked this week about uh, the testimony of the family that owns the uh, the Chiefs in Kansas City, the Hunt family, and their testimony and how uh, faith plays a significant role in their organization. Um, it, you could host a watch party and what that, I mean, you don't, not like at your house probably, but like even online, like invite a bunch of your, uh, friends, colleagues, neighbors, coworkers, family members to watch with you. You guys are all watching online and you're like engaging in a watch party, like on Facebook live or something like that, where you can engage with each other. Hey, what did you see? Um, you know, does it look like they're praying together? What is the, what does it mean to you when that person crosses themselves or points to the sky following a touchdown? Um, to whom do you think they're referring? What does that mean? What's the content of the advertisements? What do we um, learn about ourselves and uh, and what's going on in the world, those seeking to market to us? There's a real anti-trafficking effort underway, not only by the NFL, but by a number of ministries in the Tampa Bay area. So I encourage you to engage on that front as well. You could check out the Exodus Road. We talked with David Zach from Remedy Drive about that. We've talked with Kevin Malone. From the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking, they have a Tampa office. They're highly engaged in this effort. Raleigh Sadler, you'll remember him from the book Vulnerable, Rethinking Human Trafficking. International Justice Mission is engaged this week in the Tampa Bay area, seeking to identify and bring an end to human trafficking um, related not only to the Super Bowl, but to um, ongoing trafficking there uh, in uh, in the Tampa Bay area and uh, across the country and around the world. Um, So get engaged. Uh, The Super Bowl is an opportunity to engage the culture with Christ. We have another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.